Welcome to the Sean Boy Podcast. Greetings, fellow shut-ins, unicorns, minions, underpaid parents. It's 24-7, I know. It's a lot. It is practically every amount of your time. My hat's off to all parents out there. It's amazing what you do for someone littler than you. But anywho, welcome to Sean Boycast. Coming from Kentucky, an Indian word. Uh, today, I have decided to do a three-part mini-series on covering the history importance of American Indian nations from like the time period of 980 to mid 1500s in today's episode then uh, but before we get to that I'm going to talk a little bit about the coronavirus probably 10-15 minutes we'll spiel on that because I think it's relatively important. But before that, of course, we're always going to start it off with some kind of joke. And this time I have uh, a joke by a comedian by the name of Groucho Marx from the Marx Brothers. This is a short clip of him handing out insults over a period of time and TV and this is like pre-Hollywood this is like uh, vaudeville stuff from that comedy era but Groucho Marx was a huge comedy figure he was like on the Dick Cavett show good friends with him uh, Groucho was and also he was on the Johnny Carson show Actually, he was at the roast of Johnny Carson. I watched that the other day. It was pretty interesting. But the way I learned of Groucho Marx was from the amazing Colossal Podcast with Gilbert Godfrey. And that whole podcast series should be in the historical archives for vaudeville. (laughs) It's really quite amazing if you get into it and look at the old stuff a lot of it's really funny and Gilbert really does the whole show justice (laughs) but uh, anyway I'll shut up now and here's some insults from Groucho Marx I've never been so insulted in my life well it's early yet he's had a change of heart a lot of good that'll do him. He's still got the same face. I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? This lady is my wife. You should be ashamed. If this lady is your wife, you should be ashamed. She looks as healthy as any woman I've ever met. You don't look as though you ever met a healthy woman. What? Haven't we seen each other somewhere before? I don't think so. I'm not sure I'm seeing you now. It must be something I ate. I could dance with you the cows come home. Yeah. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows and you come home. I mean your eyes. Your eyes. They shine like the pants of a blue-sided suit. I want you to hold. What? Oh, hold me closer. 
closer. Closer. Hold you any closer, I'll be in back of you. Oh, why can't we break away from all this? Just you and I, and lodge with my fleas in the hills. I mean, flee to my lodge in the hills. And you can say it was a real love match. We married for money. Ain't hey, my shrinking, Violet? Say, it wouldn't hurt you to shrink 30 or 40 pounds. Oh, you impudent cat. Why, you're one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, and that's not saying much for you. Why don't you marry me? Why, marry you? You take me and I'll take a vacation. I'll need a vacation if we're going to get married. But you're the man I've been dreaming of. What do you eat before you go to bed? Yes, I don't think I've ever seen four more beautiful eyes in my life. Well, three anyway. Remember, you're fighting for this woman's honor, which is probably more than she ever did. Why don't you go home to your wife? I'll tell you what, I'll go home to your wife, and outside of the improvements, you'll never know the difference. Can you sleep on your stomach with such big buttons on your pajamas? So, you didn't think I was a real detective, eh? Uh, if you're a detective, I'm a monkey's uncle. Keep your family out of this. Oh, please. $9.40? This is an outrage. If I were you, I wouldn't pay it. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. I thought this cigar was in my other suit. I wish you were in your other suit, and your other suit was being pressed. No mangled. Did anyone ever tell you you look like the Prince of Wales? I don't mean the present Prince of Wales, one of the old Wales. And believe me, when I say Wales, I mean Wales. I know a whale when I see one. Well, all the jokes can't be good. You've got to expect that once in a while. You guys go to your rooms. I'll be down shortly. That reminds me, I must get my watch fixed. Crooks, the crooks, they are escaping. Follow me, man. Never mind the men, just the women. Oh, Hey. Yes, sir? Oh, oh no, sir. Uh, this is special for Mr. Helton, sir. You see this? Come back in a half hour and I'll give you another look at it. Can you tell me the price of this bed? $8,000. Well, that's preposterous. I can get the same bed anywhere in town for $25. Yes, but not with me in it. A lady's diamond earring has been lost. It looks exactly like this. In fact, this is it. I've been sitting right here since 7 o'clock. Yes, but you're back to me. When I invite a woman to dinner, I expect her to look at my face. That's the price she has to pay. What experience have you had in a department store? I was a shoplifter for three years. smaller than me, I'd flog the daylights out of it. But I'm bigger than you. Well, that's another reason. Are you sure you have everything of okay? I've never had any complaints yet. Are you a man or a mouse? You put a piece of cheese down there and you'll find out. One of them goes around with a black mustache. So do I. If I had my choice, I'd go around with a little run. I see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove. But I can't see the stove. This magnificent chest. No, this mag... No, this magnificent chest. I'm the plumber. I'm just hanging around in case something goes wrong with our pipes. That's the first time I've used that joke in 20 years. Is it true you're getting a divorce as soon as your husband recovers his eyesight? Is it true you wash your hair in clam broth? Is it true you used to dance in a flea circus? This is outrageous! No thanks. Bad luck. Three on a midget. We took some pictures of the native girls, but they weren't developed. But we're going back again in a couple of weeks. Why, look at that face. Oh, look at that face. <gasps> I'll go and pick up a couple of the boys. And I'll take you and pick up a couple of Why, a four-year-old child could understand this report. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. I can't make head or tail out of it. What do you think of that slide? Well, I think he was safe at second, but it was very close. You know Conductor Hennessy, don't you? Inspector. 
Inspector yourself. But look at me. I've worked myself up from nothing to a state of extreme poverty. Now, what do you say? What are you doing with that cigar in your mouth? Why, do you know another way to smoke it? I'll see you at the theater tonight. I'll hold your seat as you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Now, don't point that beard at me. It might go off. Oh, throw me the lifesaver. Oh, Professor Wagstaff, please, hurry, Professor. Anything further, Father? Anything further, Father? That can't be right. Isn't it anything farther further? Faravelli, you've got the brain of a four-year-old boy, and I bet he was glad to get rid of it. You're awfully shy for a lawyer. You bet I'm shy. I'm a shy for a lawyer. I'm going there soon, you know. Is that so? Where are you going? Uruguay. Well, you go Uruguay, and I'll go mine. Hmm, fancy seeing you here. Well, it's a small world after all. Boogie, boogie, boogie. You mind if I don't smoke? One morning, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Well, all the jokes can't be good. Well, hopefully you enjoyed my time trip and uh, historical vaudeville there from the 40s and 50s. Uh, that was the great Gracho Marx. Some of his signature insults for that time period. You know, you got to think, like, comedians didn't cuss or anything back then. But Groucho Marx is definitely someone you should look up and, and just see some of the great work that he's done that survived on video. YouTube's got a whole bunch of stuff about him. And, uh, again, another podcast to look up is Amazing Colossal Podcast. They talk about Milton Berle, uh, you know, all these old vaudeville famous people. And, uh, I'm telling you, that podcast is worth your time especially if you like a good fucking laugh from time to time. Uh, Groucho Marx is a fun, he was a funny dude from back in the day. But anyway, now it's time for current events. And this week we're going to do continued coverage of the coronavirus for about 15 minutes or so here. I'll try to bore you too long with that. But so far nationally in the U.S., there's over... 735,000 cases with 39,000 deaths. So we're well on our way to 40,000 deaths nationally in the U.S. In the state of Kentucky, we're going to be well over 3,000 probably by the end of the day here. And we got 148 deaths. And almost every county across the state is infected with at least one to five cases. So it's really happening. The coronavirus is really rampant through Kentucky. Even though we have a good response and Andy Bashir, I think, is overall doing an okay job. And he's probably doing everything that he can with the powers that he has because he is. He's magical hand Andy, you know. If you watch Andy's hands and words, you will soon discover this guy is a type of magician. That you've never met yet. <laughs> but anyway. So now that there's been enough time go by. I can kind of talk about. A little bit about what the coronavirus is doing. In a way. And what it is. The coronavirus. Is a RNA virus. See there's regular. DNA viruses. There's. 
but this one happens to be an RNA virus, so one strand and then it builds to a protein. And the coronavirus is tens of hundreds, if not millions of years old. This is a very, the coronavirus is a very ancient, ancient, ancient virus, which is probably why it's so clever. And, and the reason we don't know a lot about it is there's a lot to it. If you really get into it and look at it. But there's this stuff called hemoglobin in your blood. And hemoglobin is a molecule. And this hemoglobin in your system, well, in your lungs, it kind of helps in the, it helps, it's like the core of gas exchange. So hemoglobin holds in iron and holds it in a particular place. And air will come in and however the virus is attached to whatever substrate it gets in your mouth and uh, all that and then eventually into your hemoglobin and then uh the hemoglobin is the structure that allows gas exchange and you know the problem the thing with the coronavirus is the actual virus is its rna it's got one strain and there's this thing, this kind of machine that codes the strand or, or codes the new, um, codes the copy to be copied and put out into the cell to infect it. And that little mechanism there, it turns the, it turns that into a the copy guy, the coder guy, into an error correcting machine. What I mean by that is thanks function is no longer a it's no longer just copying things. It's error correcting. It's sitting there going, No, that's not an A, that's a T. <laughs> So it has that kind of thing. And scientists don't know if this thing can be turned on or off or what it may do in the future. Um, viruses are just like any other organism. They have, they have these different things that they can turn on. Like it's not going to get in your cell if it doesn't have a receptor it can latch on to and go, yeah, I fit there. And then, of course, it starts its crazy devastation to your body and all that. So it is an RNA virus, and it is very, very ancient. Uh, it does attack this gas exchange molecule, hemoglobin, and it does something with the iron in it, and then slowly you get what they call bronchitis, an upper respiratory problem that comes with all that, and you essentially drown. I hate to say the word that the virus is trying to kill you. The virus is just programmed in a particular way 
to do particular things. And if it so happens that it gets in a human and does it, well, that's fine too in its world. But in our world, we have to look at it, you know, whatever practices we're doing around the world that causes this thing to flourish more, that's what we got to put our money into because this shit will happen oh so much more easier in the future if we just keep doing things the way we are. And China having open markets to where you can buy live animals and have them butchered and killed there and done there. Maybe this is not the way, the best way, sanitary way to sell produce. So one of my big concerns after all is said and done is what are they doing with these live fucking feed markets? They don't have to stop that shit or what, whatever is causing the issues to pop up. That's what they have to focus on with the actual money. So far, uh, I really like uh, our governor's response to the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19 there. I've been keeping a close eye on old Andy there. Every five o'clock he comes on the TV from WKYT. He's like, all right, it's five o'clock. Are you ready for resilience and to be strong? And then I seen it. And this is this is why I'm a fan of you, Andy Bashir. This guy is sitting up there behind the podium, you know, and he looks just as pretty as you imagine, girls. Blue collar shirt, no tie, sleeves rolled up just enough. Have that old look of a Western spaghetti actor, you know. Old Andy, he's Andy is that boy from Toy Story. And, you know, Andy did the Boy Scouts. He made it all the way through. He gets no lo no lower than a B-plus on his report cards. I'm sh I don't know that for a fact, but I just know it to be true. But anyway, you know, ladies, this, this man is a true cowboy. Andy Bashir. he just shits gold. All the time. <laughs> you know. When Andy talked. It's with the reverence. Of a substitute teacher. Explaining to four year olds. The power of his magic thumbs. A skill only developed by Mr. Bashir. I move my hands like this. And use sign language. While I talk all. And convey messages. And feelings. And ideas. It's game time. We got the, we got the ball guys. Bring your thumbs. They have a story to tell as well. Well, I'm glad oh uh, thumbs there is doing a okay job, but probably the best job he can be doing, considering who he's probably got to deal with. It, I bet being in government power is no different than going to work for a restaurant somewhere with all the politics of that. I bet it's no different. <laughs> I bet everywhere there are just dumb people that you got to deal with. And, you know, 
it's really interesting to see our government tackle it so great. But, you know, the, the one thing I took away from Andy Bashir there is, I mean, his sayings are going to be legendary. I mean, he actually said this right here. He goes, I tell you, my pastor's wife had a birthday party. They did it by Zoom call. And I tell y'all, I feel better today because I participated. Uh, you know, he has those, those 10 steps to fight the COVID-19. I agree with most of them, except for the last one. <laughs> I don't agree with that one, Mr. Bashir. <laughs> Says, number one, stay healthy at home. Good advice. Stay the hell home if you ain't got no business being out. And you can be healthy at home. You know. Avoid crowds and gatherings. And I've loved how Andy has said the following words. No exceptions. No exceptions. Practice social distancing. Know when to seek care. That's a good one. Know when to seek care when you have to go to fix your feeble body. It's good to know when to do that. And, of course, they have a website because everyone has a website now. And that's KentuckyCOVID19.KY.GOV. I'll do that again. KYCOVID19.KY.GOV. There you can find all the Kentucky information you need to find out about the COVID-19 pandemic here in Kentucky. And we come to step number six. Wash hands over and over. Think about Andy while you're doing it. And then number seven, apply for benefits. This is where you get off your little butt and you go down there and you make sure you don't starve and say, I need unemployment or whatever. And that way, when you finally get it six months later, at least you'll have some money then. But anyway, um, then it says prioritize mental health. I can see how this one might be a problem for some people. Some people are probably sitting there with a pocket knife and they're cleaning their ear with it. Now, this person's ability to pry eye towards mental health, probably not going to wash. And, of course, number nine is do not travel. And uh, the one that I absolutely do not agree with, because it is actually a form of fucking snitching, is report non-compliance look if you see a guy going down the road just spitting on every car as he drives by report that motherfucker but like I can see how some people will take this and go I'm gonna call a bunch of bullshit on that dude cause I don't like you know what I mean we ain't trying to snitch on nobody we don't like that policy. Sorry. I don't anyway. But all around, 
way everything's going, I'm really, really, I'm really surprised things are not crazier than the way they are already, which some of it's getting pretty nutty. That's fine. The nuts are going to come out. Just let the nuts come out and the appropriate authorities will take care of them. Um, just stay safe. If you ain't got to go nowhere, don't go nowhere. Work on your home shit. Work on your home stuff. Just do that. But enough of all this uh, coronavirus hoo-la-la. We're going to get on to uh, something I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And we're getting ready to go to my personal take on the American Indian Nations. And we're going to do a deep dive history into it, starting now. Thank you for your continued ear. Today, I'm going to talk about the history and importance of American Indian nations. A three-part mini-series all about the history in a timeline-like fashion. Part 1 in today's episode covers 9 AD to the mid-1500s. I've wanted to do this for a long time because the technologies and the learning that American Indian nations can give us is relevant and matters. Plus, the conservation of cultures and land is something I'm 100% supportive. All indigenous cultures have a right to continue their traditions. So just to get started off here right, I'd like to open this talk up with a clip from Joseph Campbell explaining the American Indian's mythological character, the trickster, in an Indian folklore. Here you are. There is a figure in American Indian myth that represents this power of the dynamic of the total psyche to overthrow programs. This is the, the negative aspect, and it's called a trickster. Uh, it's a very, very important figure in American Indian mythologies. In, uh, in the east, in the forest lands of the northeast and uh, southeast, it's uh, the great hare, a rabbit. Uh, when you go west of the Mississippi in the plains lands, it's coyote. You get up in the northwest coast, <coughs> and it's raven. These are smart, clever birds and animals. Now, it's a great puzzler to well-trained Christians to come across the trickster hero, because he's both a kind of devil and fool and the creator of the world. And... Uh, so he comes in as an upsetting factor. He breaks through. He, he even breaks through the notion of what a deity ought to be. And uh, this, I think, is about as good an example as you can find anywhere of the trickster hero. Now, that trickster trait turns up in uh, deities like Yahweh. Yahweh's a trickster. He lets people build a building, and then because it gets to be two, two, three stories high, 
he afraid it's going to wreck heaven, and he comes down and, and, and floods the world. That's a trickster stunt. That's a ridiculous act. And uh, we think it quite normal for a, for a deity to behave that way. If a human being behaved that way, we'd send him to a lunatic asylum. And here you have the deity coming through as the, as the trickster, as the destroyer, as the disruptor of programs. Yahweh's full of this kind of thing. Well, uh, the coyote stories are, are, are really great. There's a rather amusing one. Oh, well, to start. I suppose the most um, important myth uh, associated with this uh, trickster <coughs> is that of the flood. Uh, the American Indian uh, floods, uh, the story will start with all the animals on, uh, on a raft with old man, who is a humanized aspect of coyote, among them. And uh, he sends a... Uh, after a certain time, he sends a diving animal down, a muskrat or a diving bird or a loon or something like that, to get a little piece of mud out of the water and bring it up. Now this, this motif we find in American Indian stories of the, the diver who brings up the mud and then old man takes it and puts it on the water and makes some uh, magic and, and the, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then he sends a a fox or something to run around the world and see if it's big enough and on the third or fourth time it's big enough and and there we are now in this uh, theme of the uh, old man on the raft uh, appears in siberia northern siberia among the chukchi or uh, the Finns even and the laps most people in the north the uh, shadow of god is this negative figure and the deity sends a diver down. This is known as the earth diver motif. And he comes up with a little bit of mud, but he doesn't give it all to the deity. And after the deity has put the mud down and made a perfectly orderly world, then this other one spits out the rest of the mud, and that makes mountains and difficulties and everything of that kind. I believe the trickster is in some ways a part of a real nature. It has its way of disrupting programs. He's the negative or yang part of the yin-yang. You'll notice it's not yin and yang, it's yin-yang because you can never get rid of the negative aspect shadow that is life. That's, you know, the nature you see is the so-called evil nature that exists. In a way, I think of uh, the trickster as a god's shadow. I believe stories and mythological tales are not only important, but a record of our actual state of being. So here's two more Indian stories told from actual Indians from a couple of documentaries I watched and I love the Indian stories because they're packed with uh, deep symbolic lessons like these two. Kiowa's story has it that eight children were playing in the woods and uh, there were seven sisters and their brother 
The boy is pretending to be a bear and he's chasing his sisters who are pretending to be afraid and they're running. And as they, uh, a terrible thing happens in the course of the game, the boy actually turns into a bear. And when the, when the sisters see this, they are truly terrified and they run for their lives, the bear after them. They pass the stump of a tree and the tree speaks to them and says, if you will climb upon me, I will save you. So the little girls scamper on top of the tree stump. And as they do so, it begins to rise into the air. The bear comes to kill them, but they're beyond its reach. And it rears up and scores the bark all around with its claws. The story ends. The girls are born into the sky they become the stars of the Big Dipper. It's a wonderful story because it accounts for the rock, Devil's Tower, this monolith that rises nearly a thousand feet into the air. And it also relates man to the stars. Do not misunderstand me, but understand me fully and my affection for the land. I never said the land was mine to do with as I chose. The one who has the right to dispose of it is the one who has created it. I claim a right to live on my land and accord you the privilege to live on yours. Heen Matu Yalak Kekt, Chief Joseph. Clearly, the first uh, clip accounts for the Devil's Tower, uh, famous tower that everybody's seen in so many postcards. Um, this story relates, you know, the Kiowa to the stars. And not only that, it's just a neat story that is their, one of their many stories about what the Big Dipper means to them. So I think that's a relevant kind of truth in a mythological kind of way. And uh, in the second clip, uh, that was Chief Joseph. He kind of stated a stance, I guess you could say, was the thinking of the American Indian in their time period was, I don't own land. And I have no right to claim it. The Indian nations did not understand ownership of land in the way that Western society does today. The concept that you could even own a piece of land to an Indian, it didn't make any sense because they had no concept of such a thing. So, so to start off, we're going to go back to the ancestry, to the ancestors of the Indians to around 980, part one of what I call the ancestors. Okay, welcome to my three-part mini-series. 
where I'm talking about the importance of the American Indian nations. And today we're going to be starting off with the prehistory or the ancestors of the Indians when they talked about them. And basically there was four kingdoms. It was uh, during that time period. And I'm going to go through yeah. all four of them and how they came about. So, uh, the first kingdom I'll talk about is the Anasazi. And uh, they flourished, uh, uh, the earliest known they know of is 180, and the latest is, uh, they seem to disperse and migrate somewhere else around 1300 AD. So we're talking about from 100 AD all the way to 1300 AD, that the was a major player. And uh, this actual geographical location of this place is actually modern day Colorado, Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico. They have ruins that's left behind like the towers in Utah. Um, the actual Anasazi uh, community near the Colorado Plateau said that there's an estimated 30,000 people around 900 AD uh, that could have lived there and all sustained each other as a society. However, there was never any bodies found at Chaco Canyon, which is the main city, which I'll get into in a little bit. But just to start at their beginning, um... The Anasazi were heard of even before the time of Jesus' death. Um, they, they lived in these underground pits, keeping their dwellings from the cold deserts and harsh, hot weather. Over time, they started building stone buildings and soon used underground buildings as a place of worship, keeping with their creation story and their tradition of uh, keeping their religion alive. They decided to actually follow their religion to a T and not waste any space that they gained before, such as their deep dwelling homes. So that's neat. <laughs> and the Hopi Indians are direct descendants of these peoples. So, so was almost uh, all the... Indian nations. Uh, the Anasazi decided to make a great capital in the middle of their land called Chaco Canyon, a hundred miles north of modern-day Albuquerque. They built 400 miles of roads, all leading to the canyon with large blaze fires for signaling and all that kind of thing, were set up to guide them on their love for trade and commerce. The Anasazi decided to construct the city a great place, uh, and their efforts took till about 11 AD when the capital known as Pablo Benito was in full operation. Pablo Benito housed about 800 rooms. Some parts stood three stories about above the canyon floor and housed about a thousand people 
I had corn and ground it up on the roofs and had circular grinders. Now, during this time period, and Pablo Benito's, uh, I guess you could say it's funding, it's money, it's income source that it had coming in was actually turquoise was the engine of uh, Pablo Benito's economic wealth. Turquoise was actually more, worth more than gold or jade at that time. This turquoise was mined and shaped into tiles and beads for uh, trade in central Mexico. This endeavor was successful for about 150 years. Extreme drought may have played a part in the decline and but civil strife was a problem in Mexico and trade suffered as well. But by 1150, the turquoise trade was in a great decline. Uh, the Anasazi, soon after this setback, started moving north toward Mesa Verde, which you have all the uh, dwellings up there. And then uh, it's southern Colorado. Largest of the Quiffdale dwellings they uh, constructed was called Cliff Palace. And finally, around 1300 AD, the Anasazi migrated out to the modern Pueblos of the Southwest Territories of today. The next great ancestor nation was the Cahokia. I think it's pronounced Cahokia. And that stands for City of the Sun. And they thrived between 750 to 1380. And their traditions, the ones that they can date back, go all the way back to 1000 BC. So these guys go even further back. <laughs> In another episode I did with a podcast called Pre-Flood Lost Civilization... I believe this is probably one of those uh, kingdoms that was probably one of the pre-flood civilizations that survived the Great Flood. And, of course, I'm talking about over in Mississippi on the Mississippi River. There were great mound builders. There's famous Monk's Mound east of St. Louis. The Great Serpent Mound, which is over 400 yards in length. 50 miles east of uh, Cincinnati. And then you got Moundville in Alabama. Some mounds stood three stories high, over three over thousands of mounds all up and down the Mississippi River in that area. Their city capital was the city of the sun, Kokia. The modern Tunica Biloxi nation two tribes that merged as one in the 19th century, the Tunica people were said to be the relatives of the Mississippi uh, peoples there. So here's a Tux and Belusky leader telling the eagle story that I've always loved on a documentary I watched called 500 Nations. <laughs> wanted to send a prayer to the sun so he called on his friend the bear 
And the mayor came and he said, oh, I'm very honored to be asked to do this, but I can, I can only take it to the top of the highest tree. But I know someone who can. So let's call Eagle. And so Eagle was called and Eagle said, yes, I can try. And so Eagle flew and flew and flew up, up, up and got to the sun and delivered the prayer. And the sun was so taken with this, said, give me one of your feathers. And so the eagle plucked out a tail feather and gave it to the sun, and the sun kissed that feather, which is why, you know, eagle feathers are black on the end, and it's just because the sun sends them there. He said, take this back, and forever this will be my recognition of my special people. These mound builders were a massive web of peoples, 20,000 that would be, uh, that wouldn't be matched until, uh, in population size, it wouldn't be matched until the 1800s. They made mounds in the landscape that took 100 years to complete, only with buckets they had on their backs. More impressive was the artwork they did, like the small intricate work that they did on little carvings and stuff. Uh, also, the Mound Builders Riverways connected uh, the nation's trade to one-third of the continental U.S. They were major traders. They traded uh, copper that was coming from the Great Lakes, obsidian from Yellowstone, gold and silver from Canada, Mike and Crystal, Mike and Crystal from the Appalachian Mountains, and Shell from the Gulf of Mexico. Mound builders were not typical of a modern description of an Indian. They did not live in teepees and had a more sanitary and modern approach to living in their time period. They were royalties, nobles, priests, farmers, and hunters. They had a daub and wattle houses. They were a peaceful group of people and had almost uh, democratic laws of a sort. Um, their king, that was also a pope, he sat in a palace that was 10 stories high, 16 acres at its base, larger than any Egyptian pyramid, and uh, they worshipped the sun, but not just the sun, but what the power was behind it. Like, they understood why their food grew was because of the sun. So they worshipped it for that reason, not just for the simple fact that there's the sun. Um, in their tradition, a man came down from the sun and told them, you guys don't know how to handle yourself wisely, so... Uh, you should follow what I say and that way it ensure you a good life and a way to live. And this was what the supposed sun man said to the mound builders. You must never kill anyone except in defense of your own life. You must never know any woman but your own. Must never take from another and never lie must give to people with less than us and who need it. I'd say those are some pretty core democratic beliefs there. Um, but these people are not like 
a lot of people use the word savages when it comes to Indians. I hate it because so many of the ancient ancestors of the Indians, they were not savages, just like the, you know, nations you hear about today are not savages. They may seem like savages because of some of the actions they took or did, but once you see the story, you can see why. But that is the Cahokia-type people or mound builders. And I do believe they probably came from a earlier time period before the flood. But on to the next kingdom here. 2,000 miles south of Cahokia lay an undiscovered ruin, a place called Palenque, along with about 60 other cities in modern-day Guatemala. They called these people the Great Pyramid Builders. They had an amazing calendar, and these people are the Mayan. You may have heard of the Mayan people, but the Mayan had a far deeper and or just as much if not more history to its culture in its time period but what is on the walls and what little they found in a tomb is all we know of uh, the mayan people only in the 1980s did we discover that the mayan writing was a true spoken written language their writing looked like pictures but Upon closer inspection and research, it was uh, actually a language in written form. The pictures were hinting at syllables and words. So, they used symbols for sound. And by the time of Christ, millions were migrating to Central America there. So, in 603 A.D., A future ruler by the name of Pakal was born. And Pakal, in Mayan language, interpreted correctly as shield. Some people call him Lord Shield, but the only translation is shield. His head was bound with a board to elongate it, and this was a sign of the royal elite. He also decorated his head with water lilies, which I thought was extra funny. Uh, came to power at the age 12, Pakal. He would lead 70 years and grow the empire, a holy empire. Uh, and 60 cities around him grew up in Honduras back in their time called Copain. And then their capital city, Tikal, and then other places too. Uh, like I said, in the Cahokia time period, just like then, I believe maybe the Maya were way older civilization and to survive some of that great flood. Their art, mathematics, astronomy, and architecture is even more ancient and deeper than the others at the time period. They invented the number zero, their calendar was more precise than anybody at the time. Uh, for, and then some say, uh, well, uh, don't say, but the art, their art is amazing because it's a graphic representation 
of the imagination they had in their head. Meaning, these people didn't make complex things because they were simpletons or unskilled at what they did with their art and everything. So there's that. But they had priesthoods and royalties, a functional society that flourished. Now, uh, this is what Pakal had built up. But by the mid-700s, the sons of uh, Pakal ruled over 200,000 in the city of uh, Palenque alone. There were stone workers, feather workers, weavers, and farmers. That was their residential area. And just to give you some of the more darker side of uh, the Mayans, uh, here's a clip that I've watched on a documentary that I really liked, and I think it describes exactly some of the ruthlessness of the Mayans. A more complex view of the Maya began to emerge. Instead of these peaceful stargazing astronomer-priests, the Maya were shown to be like any other civilization uh, with a great deal of conflict. One of their great claims to fame was how many captives they had taken as offerings to their gods and ancestors. They would also periodically engage in the most precious offering of all, which was in offering their own blood. The importance of self-sacrifice can be seen in this ceremony. A royal lady conjures a vision of a serpent with an offering of her own blood. She has perforated her tongue with a stingray spine to draw a rope embedded with thorns through the incision. In front of her, slips of paper soaked in her own blood burn in a ceramic bowl. Out of the rising smoke forms the vision of a serpent. From its mouth emerges the figure of an ancestor. The upper text describes the ceremony. On March 28, 755, a vision was conjured of the serpent Yash Nochan, the animal spirit of the god Kawil. And then a vision was conjured of the ancestor, Yash Chawin. The glyph for conjure shows a hand grasping a fish. It's this idea of grabbing something that's elusive, reaching into another realm in a way, or even into the underworld, and, and, and wrenching something out of that and bringing it into your own world. That is conjuring. From glyphs and art, the psyche of the ancient Maya was emerging. We now saw the Maya uh, uh, people as a whole. So you could look at a piece of Maya art and the inscriptions on the tops of the vases and understand what the heck these people were doing. One myth, painted repeatedly on Maya vases, echoes a surviving 16th century manuscript, the Popol Vuh. It tells the saga of twin brothers summoned to the underworld. They play a ball game against the lords of the underworld in which they are finally defeated and uh, they are sacrificed. The head of the main brother there is cut off and hung up in a tree. And a young lady comes by, uh, who is the daughter of one of the lords of the underworld. She talks to the head and it spits into her hand. Naturally, she becomes pregnant. 
Banished from the underworld, she eventually gives birth to a second set of twins. They become skilled warriors and return to the underworld to fight its lords. After a series of clever tricks, they resurrect the body of their father, the Maze God, and bring food back to their people. Then they rise up to become the sun and moon. This is the single most important myth that we have from the entire new world, probably the most important piece of literature ever produced in the Western Hemisphere. Soon after the 700 AD mark, uh, I think the Mayan civilization started having problems that still unsolved to history today. And uh, all their uh, reign became about the, it was a time of war and inward collapse of the Mayan Empire. Uh, farmers became soldiers, and finally by 800 AD, the Maya civilization was disappeared and abandoned. Some say their collapse was because of drought, even of volcanic eruption. Despite all that, though, about 7 million Ma Mayan people still exist today. And, uh, yeah. Now we're going to get on to the last kingdom here. And that will be the Aztec Kingdom. To get to the Aztecs' uh, history, I guess, lesson here, you got to go back to about the time of Jesus to whenever uh, that area kind of started being populated and everything. And this is central Mexico. This is 30 miles from modern-day Mexico City. And the place was called, and forgive my pronunciation, Teotihuacan, which, <laughs> if I said it right, means city of the gods. Um, evidence suggests that they had a strong sense of authority. And Teotihuacan was the first city. It thrived from about 180 to 550 A.D. And uh, the planning for the city was carried out from day one, impressive in today's standards of city planning. They had a clear plan for their city, and their city was pretty much ran by a mineral called, or an element called, obsidian. It was mined by Teotihuacan and used for flaking tools and weapons. It was found all over central Mexico. Obsidian made Teotihuacan the dominant trader in the region. Um, they also had like a, a darker side to them, of course, because all these places, you know, you take any one of these kingdoms and they had sacrifice and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but in this one in particular, in this place, the paintings in the apartments that that they found, the plaster and some of the stuff that ain't flaked off yet and the actual artwork that they found, the paintings in all the apartments were government mandated for state propaganda over every home dwelling there was. And they 
They also played a game called Hips, or Ulama. It's still played in western Mexico in some places. Took eight points to win and used an eight-pound ball. This, ga this game stretches back 4,000 years before Tutatacon. So it's a pretty ancient old game, and you can still see it played. You can bring it up on YouTube. Ulam, called Hips. Uh, the winner of the game was sacrificed to the gods as an honor. The player would not die through playing the game. He would die in honor of playing the game. So, still a big controversy on why this place fell. But uh, one of the reasons that they think that Totiacon probably didn't make it was they used plaster on the city. Every year they used 30,000 tons of pine wood per year. That's 3,000 acres a year over centuries. The city, the city never recovered. Neither did the forest. This caused soil nutrition deficiencies over time. They depleted the whole area of pine trees. And in the last century or so, an economic divide came between the high elite and the lower classes. And all this may have been the reason why Totiakon fell. They found deliberate evidence of fire set in all the holy priest and governmental dwellings. So there was an uprising as well, probably. I think these peoples may have been a, had an uprising and may have uh, ended that place. And by 550 AD, Tuacon was a ruin. Okay, so that's the first little place that sprung up down in central Mexico, leading to the rise of the Aztec people. But soon after uh, this uh, little place died off here, uh, another people started coming up after some time. And as all the good happenings started happening around 800 A.D. to 1200 A.D. And these are, of course, the people they call the Toltec people. They had a capital called Tolan. And uh, and then there's another city called Tula, 45 miles uh, away from uh, Mexico City. And in 1000 AD, that's when they really reached the peak of their power. First, the Toltec name, the, the name, first Toltec king's name, uh, Mixcoatl, meaning Milky Way. So it's interesting that their king's name was Milky Way. Uh, 30 to 40, 30 to 40,000 people lived in Tolon. And uh, the Toltec people were probably leftover descendants from the other civilization I shared with you just there one minute ago. So some of these people probably came from that civilization over generations. 
the Toltec had been found to show strong ties with the Mayan civilization, may have borrowed city planning and architecture from each other and came from an earlier split of the same tribe. So who even knows about that? But I think that's probably just a, it may have happened that way. You know, the Mayan, the Toltec, or the mound builders, they all may have came from way, way earlier times. So, and the Aztecs later adapted the jewelry-making skills of the Toltec people. Um, the Toltec, they were said to be the, the descendants of the Tutankhamun peoples from uh, the final breakup in 750 AD, like I said. The Toltec people were kind of looked up, up at. They were kind of looked up at because they were pretty much like a a new way of doing uh, government and everything, and uh, all the other tribes around that area took notice of it. Quetzalcoatl was the god that they believed in, and uh, that basically means the feathered serpent which comes important later. And uh, Pretzelquoto was a god from that time period. A lot of civilizations uh, claimed him as their god. The Almanacs did. The Toltecs did. There's a bunch of places. But in 1150 AD, some force came and burned all the temples of the Toltec people, specifically Tula. And a drought probably contributed to their downfall on some level, too. Um, the leftover Toltec, Toltec uh, they assimilated and got taken in by slavery or wherever else they went. The Toltec also redefined leadership and use morals in their governmental practices. They ran their government like the Vatican, the Justice Department, and Wall Street. There was actually a guy in the Toltec civilization that had the same name as the god they worshipped, and he was exiled and banished. And uh, he bowed to return and save the people of the Toltec. So that comes important, and that comes that becomes important later on in the story here of how the rise to the to Aztec came. So, so the Toltec reigned, and they were doing good all up until the time that they met what eventually would become the Aztec people, and they were called the Mexica. And the Mexica came from a place in the west. They were a nomadic tribe, and all while both of those little minor civilizations before the Aztec came up, they were all traveling across the desert with the goal in mind of finding their homeland, much like Moses did with Exodus uh, and all that. These people were looking for their promised land as well, and they were a little bit different than the folk in those parts, and I'll get into that in just a second. 
Now these Mexica were seen as a threat to the Valley of Mexico. Local towns drove them out, but this did not slow them down. They were used to adversity and they started selling their services as, as missionaries to local towns. So they get kicked out once, slapped on a hand, and then they cleverly start hiring themselves out as mercenaries. <laughs> the Shemika, the 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 Mashika did one thing with a king in 1325 that was kind of Hannibal Lecter-like, <laughs> sick. In 1325, the Mashika asked to be married to a daughter of a, a Kalkan leader. And the leader saw this as a unifying move. But days later, when the king came for his daughter, instead of finding his young daughter, he found a priest wearing his daughter's skin. And uh, the Lord of Calkin called for revenge. Again, the Mexican were driven back again, this time in a swampy lake. It was in this time the Mexica finally received the sign they had been looking for. They saw a certain sign that they had been told in their past, and when they saw it, they knew they had found their land and their place. They called this place Totitokan. This was seen as the promised land. Again, they established trade and made the city a major player and did missionary work for the locals so they got a little bit more and that marriage they did then kind of got them into some more power and uh, they were able to gain more power that way so at this stage of the game they could marry key dominant players and uh, the name Aztec came from their original city that they come out of the west Aslan and uh they were truly a nomadic tribe, and they were truly looking for, I mean, centuries they roamed the desert until they saw that sign, and then they're like, well, this is it. They they soon become more powerful, had, uh, had also rare exotic birds. Streets and towns were cleaned daily, high-skilled trade for far and wide. Ever since they were nomadic Aztecs, they wanted to rule the world at the high point of their kingdom. And at the high point of their kingdom, a king called Matekazuma had a prophecy of fears from earlier teachings. And it gets into that feathered serpent and everything. But real quick, here's a clip to kind of give you an idea of uh, where the Aztec mind was. The center of Tenochtitlan was dominated by the great temple, its twin pyramids representing deities who embodied the conflict at the heart of Aztec society, the eternal struggle between life and death, fertility and war.
Their private rituals, which on special occasions included the sacrifice of human prisoners, incorporated this duality. Life required death to exist, and death required life. Tenochtitlan became a city of hundreds of thousands, a bustling metropolis ruled by the Aztec emperor from the Grand Imperial Palace. But in the year one read, the Christian year 1519, Motecuzoma could feel a shadow across his empire. And he could not forget that the prophecy of Aztec greatness had a dark side, a prophecy long held in their oral tradition. I shall make war against all provinces and cities, towns and settlements, and make all of them my subjects, my servants. But just as I will subjugate them, so too will they be snatched from me and turned against me by strangers who will drive me out of this land. So in the earlier tales there, uh, they talked of this feathered serpent. And they banded a guy back in the day and he said he vowed to return and this was a this was a religious thing that was going on with the Aztecs and uh, word arrived of peoples that were unlike anyone they had met before from the Gulf of Mexico and uh, they landed on the Gulf Coast and Metecazuma could feel uh, the prophecy coming true you know and he, this, the Aztecs were a very, they were very into their dreams and they were very into signs. And I mean, they were a very superstitious kind of people. And uh, who had landed there was none other than the, Span the Spanish conquistador, Hernando Cortez. And Hernando Cortez was a ruthless motherfucker i believe he is probably one of the most diabolical evil people to ever roam the planet <laughs> actually mateko zuma uh eventually fell so did the aztecs and uh this was the start of their downfall <laughs> because most of the population of the Aztecs, uh, a lot of the city-states, they actually believed in the telling of this person coming back and uh, liberating them and saving them from the Toltec people. Like, like back in the Toltec time, that's whenever this was born, this ideal of a savior coming back from the Gulf Coast. So here's Hernando Cortez showing up, and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go in here and eradicate everybody and get what it is mine that is uh, rightly appointed to me, and that is uh, the ever-pursuit of gold. I mean, uh, he even said it, too. Like uh, He said something like, uh, the highest thing that a good Spaniard could do is to go find gold any means necessary 
Hernando had about 450 men he ordered into the interior. And just to make sure that they didn't run away or his crew didn't run away, he sank every ship of theirs into the Gulf. And, um, yeah, they went on into the interior. Uh, he pretty much told them, hey, you're stuck here now. <laughs> this, so the Spanish conquistadors arrives at the main city and uh, they overthrow and wipe out the Aztecs. So we're kind of leaving it here at this point. And so this is the first time that North America has seen these white, native, blonde-headed, black-headed, yellow-looking people. And uh, it kind of threw everything in the wrench at that time period. And this is when all the troubles and everything started with the Indian Nations people. So when we come back next time on my next podcast, we're going to talk about part two and we're going to get into the Spanish conquistadors and then we're going to slowly get into how Columbus showed up and what he did to the Tino people out of uh, the Caribbean. And we'll go over that. And then the third installment, I don't know, maybe I can tell it in two podcasts, but we'll see. But uh, again, I know it's been a long talk, but I figure this is something I've been wanting to do about the Indian civilizations. This is just the beginning one, the, you know, the deep history, the, the ancestors of the Indians is what we went over today. So join me next time. But for now, we're going to go on to some music and I've done some solo work. Uh, got about eight songs I do, probably about three or four covers in there. But I hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, join me next time when we finish this thing up. Good evening, Sean Boy listeners. On this week's Sean's Live and Local Sessions, it's going to be me solo with a classical guitar and uh, my vocals. And uh, we're going to go at it with eight songs. A couple of them covers, rest of them all originals. But uh, this first one here is uh, by... uh, Artist that uh, I think a lot of people are into and a lot of people love, but uh, guess what? Surprise, I do too, and that's Bob Dylan. I'm going to do a lesser known one there by him called Let Me Die in My Footsteps. I always love the song, and it goes like this.
Sun meets the sea. 
This next song here, I've entitled Endemic <laughs> because the pandemic has changed our thinking so radically and much of late that I went ahead and turned around that. And Well, what about the pandemic that goes on within oneself? And boom, this song come out of it. <laughs> So, uh, just me and my little rehearsal day here, sharing it with you. Enjoy.
this song here is a new one too. And it was co-written with someone. But I'm not going to reveal that until way later. Whenever I see where it goes. But uh, this was co-written <laughs> by someone. <laughs> uh, and it's called Trust Yourself. I wrote some lines. They wrote some lines. And this song is a result called Trust Yourself. So, enjoy.
Well, it's time for another cover here. For my Sean Boy subscriber and listeners there. And this is by a guy by the name of Cass McCombs. He's got a wonderful band that backs him, man. This plays all kinds of different good music. And this song in particular is called Nobody's Nixon, which in the original, there's this kind of old western piano part in it that I love and the way he sings the song and I just think it's a good storytelling song with the emphasis on President Nixon but uh without further ado this is Cass McCombs song Nobody's Nixon Nobody's hustler, no pinky ring around my finger, but I have driven in my shell limousine. My girl dressed in sequins, shine just like a bigger singer, and I'm up all night void and scary dreams. So good.
The song is called Simpler. They said broken and poor. Thinking about where you went, now you're gonna go. Another one running by stars. Oh, just another one done and by stars. May this pen be a cry. To all my poor friends, it's inhumane to kill and not you. This song here is called Truly Wealthy. It's an older song, man. It's about being truly wealthy. Take my time, you can keep your five minutes, oh. 
last original I got here is a very old song of mine called Handheld Devil. And it's uh, all about the behavior of thong, that thing you're listening to, the smartphone. But uh, here it is. It's called Handheld Devil. <laughs>
Well, in conclusion here, I hope you've uh, liked my songs that I played for you there and my talk on the ancient ancestors, the Aztec, the Mayan, the Mound Builders, and the Anasazi. I really enjoyed giving that talk. I think it's important that people know their history of where things go and where it came from. And a long time ago, I always was kind of upset because I never got taught the correct history of pretty much anything. So that's why I do this. I enjoy it. But next week we're going to be going over part two of this which gets more into the Spanish conquistadors and all that. And I hope you like my talk on old Andy Bashir there. Big fan of him. I really like how he moves his hands while he talks. It looks extremely funny and is great for my morale in this time of pandemic. So thank you, Andy Bashir, for being so funny, naturally. But uh, get off of that there. Take care of yourself. Put your garden out. Stay home. Don't be out if you don't have to be. And again, thank you for your continued ear. And uh, this is the Sean Boycast signing off. Toodaloo. Till next time.